I'm Dr. Tim Sagers, and this is Captive Health Presents Healthcare Insights. Today, I'll be sitting down with Dr. Lyle Berkowitz. Dr. Lyle is a primary care physician, healthcare futurist, and a digital health expert who is considered a thought leader both here in the U.S. and abroad. He trained in medicine at the University of Illinois and practiced at Northwestern University. He has extensive experience with healthcare startups and has helped lead the deployment of many healthcare innovations. Currently, he is the founder and CEO of KeyCare, a new and exciting virtual care solution. In today's conversation, we discuss the growth of telemedicine and virtual care, the experience of telemedicine use during the COVID-19 pandemic, ways for patients to better engage with telemedicine, and future use cases for telemedicine and virtual care technology. Myself and the team at Captive Health have worked closely with Dr. Lyle and the team at KeyCare. They are taking telemedicine to new heights, and I'm excited to learn more from him today about the future of telemedicine. With that, let's talk better health with Dr. Lyle. Lyle, I have probably not given you due justice to your background, your history, and your contributions, but maybe you could tell us a little more about what you do every day, what gets you excited, and what you're really interested in on a day-to-day basis. For sure. I, I'll tell you, I started out as a biomedical engineer, so I always had this you know, problem-solving mentality. Went to med school, found this field of IT and informatics, which you know really worked with my interest and history and, and love of computers and technology, and eventually spent you know, two decades plus at um, a large healthcare system here in Chicago, Northwestern Medicine. Um, like you, part-time primary care doctor, part-time system executive. I focused on informatics and innovation and just how do we make life better for patients and physicians and other providers using technology and innovative thinking. Um, uh, and I always was interested, involved in what we call virtual care telehealth, basically doing things outside the office using, you know, it, when I was coming up, we used email you know, well before HIPAA even, and patients loved it. We use phone. Um, you know, doctors have been using virtual care for 100 plus years. Um, and uh, it just made sense to me um, from an efficiency perspective and convenience perspective. The issue often was who's going to pay for all this. Um, and in the HMO era, um, when things were more capitated, it was easier. But um, I tried a variety of ways to bring that into our health system. Um, I wound up helping, though, after leaving the health system, running one of the larger telehealth companies, um, being involved in that, saw what could happen at a national scale, uh, and then now started another national you know, virtual care company um, that uh, works on the electronic medical record system called EPIC, which is the predominant EMR used uh, throughout the nation. So my day-to-day is figuring out how to build up um, uh, and get a team that can build the technology to make these visits really convenient, how to figure out how to get the doctors and other providers that can provide really great care as virtualists and really defining what it means for providers to do care virtually. The virtualist concept um, implies that there's a different type of care that's done uh, and that how do we find the benefits of that and how do we bring that together in an integrated way with the healthcare systems that provide the more complex care um, so that we have this unifying system that helps transform how a health system can manage a population um, by help by me building a team of a tech-enabled virtualist that can support 
health systems and together take care of patients um, in a better way. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I, I really appreciate the integrative concept, the idea that we're integrating back into the bigger health system when we deliver telemedicine, which I think is something that's been missing in programs around the country. And I want to come back to that and talk a little more about that and the integration within the health record, specifically Epic. I just want to get one thing out of the way before we continue our conversation. Um, you know, when you talk about telemedicine, telehealth, virtual care, those those phrases and words are used inter- interchangeably a lot. Um, I'm I'm a stickler. I I stick to the word telemedicine. I know some people talk about virtual care. And early on, years ago, I'd say, well, when you say virtual care, that means it doesn't really exist. It's kind of magical, right? But but I think the the term virtualist, when you use that, you're referring to providers that deliver care via via uh, the virtual methods, the the digital methods, the telephonic mm-hmm. care, all that stuff. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand. We throughout this podcast, we'll probably use these terms interchangeably and. <laughs> Um, just to make sure we're all on the same page there. Um, when you talk about the term virtualist, and I want to make sure that that our mm-hmm. listeners understand, um, virtualists are doctors or other providers um, trained in the same way. They just have chosen a different way to communicate with patients. Is that a fair way to describe that? It certainly starts like that. So these are, you know, can be doctors, nurses, any type of provider, you know, who is providing, you know, this virtual care, telehealth, video, phone, asynchronous, email, et cetera, outside of the office. But further, I'd say that similar to how we saw in the 1990s, um, this split of hospitalists, doctors who really focus and become experts on taking care of people in the hospital. And I'd say the typical doctors are officeologists. They're really optimized to work in the office. Virtualists um, have yet another type of specialty um, where they're not simply replicating a 15-minute office visit with a 15-minute video visit. They're taking advantage of all the different types of technologies to you know, either, one, um, use technology to improve a type of care. You can, If I do a video visit with someone, I actually could theoretically bring in technology that um, read their facial um, uh, changes, um, could get vital signs from a camera, um, could listen to voice um, modulation and detect depression um, and other interesting things. And or uh, I can think about how do I use technology to make the visit more efficient? Um, how do I use asynchronous type of modalities like email and texting um, to do certain things? How do I use remote monitoring um, to monitor patients so I only need to talk to them when they um, have a problem um, that the automation has detected? Uh, so virtualists, um, uh, the idea there is they're much more scalable for particularly easier routine patient things in a stable patient. Um, whereas an officeologist, maybe they should be seeing a smaller number of patients who have more complexity um, in doing longer in-person visits. So the virtualist can do shorter, quicker visits on stable folks and, again, use a lot more technology um, to virtually monitor patients. So you can start seeing how you might bring them together as a team so that the primary doctor in the office um, could sort of triage who they need to see versus who can be seen by a virtualist, either for a minor urgent issue or a long-term chronic issue that's relatively stable, but just needs some type of monitoring. Yeah, that's great. And that's helped segue a little bit into 
the rest of our discussion because I think we saw during the pandemic um, the benefit of telemedicine, virtual care, and how the virtualist could augment the existing care model. Um, you know, when you look back over the the COVID pandemic, I know the health system I work in, we went from doing a handful of telemedicine or virtual visits daily to doing hundreds, literally overnight, literally mm-hmm. overnight, because we had the, the infrastructure in place. And we knew that someday, in fact, our CEO at one time told me, all we need is a catastrophe to get telemedicine going. Um, and that's kind of what happened uh, for most of the country. But like you said, we've been doing telemedicine forever. We've done email. We've done phone calls, that kind of stuff. I don't think a lot of people think about that as telemedicine or virtual care, but it is. Uh, but when you think about virtual care, as a lot of us frame it now with with digital visits, video visits, visits via mobile device, that kind of thing, we've seen just tremendous growth uh, over the course of the pandemic. In fact, even those with lesser resources or non-commercial insurance, Medicare, I think, saw a tenfold increase in, in telemedicine or virtual visits. Um, I think CMS reported that Medicaid saw 15 times more virtual visits during the pandemic than they had previously. Um, mm-hmm. So for those of us like you and I that are big proponents and supporters of virtual care, uh, this this was a boost we needed and a, a chance to really demonstrate the, the value and the, the worth of a virtual care. Um, since since the pandemic has waned somewhat, um, I think we've seen some telemedicine utilization changes. There's been a little less utilizations. People have gone back to more of an in-person or traditional uh, care experience, although um, I think most places still enjoy a, a, a nice, robust use of, of virtual care. Can you talk a little bit, um, with that backdrop, can you talk a little bit about what you see happening or what you feel that relates to as far as barriers or attitudes? Because I think, in my opinion, uh, we demonstrated quite well during the pandemic how well this modality works for care access. Yeah, you're right. We So immediately during the shutdown, yeah, March 2020, um, basically we saw vast majority, 80 plus percent of healthcare yeah, be done in a virtual format. So this big peak, but then it started coming down. Yeah, and and down and down and you know, back to, you know, where, where it once was, you know, well under 1%, we're at a solid 10, 15, 20% at some places, um, mainly for follow-up and or mild urgent uh, visits. Um, and a lot of people say, oh, well, I guess people just want to come back to the office. Um, but the reality is it's not about what the patient wants. It's about what the provider wants. And, uh, and the provider is said, I want to get back to the office. Um, they are, again, optimized for the office. Their workflow, financials, um, comfort level um, is in the office. And while they're willing to do a little virtual care, majority of what they want to do is get people back in the office because that's what they're used to. And that makes sense. And, you know, it, it's just logical. However, as you said, the genie's out of the bottle. We saw we could do it. Doctors say, okay, I could do this if needed. And patients were like, wow, this is great. I didn't even realize this was an option. Um, I want to do more of this. Um, so we actually surveyed uh, several hundred patients, uh, consumers um, last year, and asked them, what do you prefer? Not what would you do, but what do you prefer? Particularly, we said for a routine issue, whether it's an urgent minor issue, cold sinus infection, or a chronic issue that's relatively stable, hypertension, diabetes, but a routine type of issue, what do you prefer? Do you prefer coming into the office and seeing someone in person? Do you prefer doing it online? Or do you prefer just whichever one's most available. And what we found was the vast 
majority of those folks, uh, um, uh, almost uh, 45%, said they prefer if it could be done virtually. 33% said, I prefer coming into the office still. And the other 20% said, uh, whichever is first available, which is probably going to be doing it online. So this is not what are they willing to do, but what they actually prefer to do. Now, we didn't ask them, what do you want to do for a super complex problem? Because really, you know, that can be done virtually in some cases, but usually it's going to involve something face-to-face. But 50-plus percent of healthcare, fairly um, routine issues. I call them, uh, Tim, the, the triple R threat that sort of drowns our doctors. Routine, repeatable, rules-based care. Relatively easy stuff that doctors might spend their whole day doing, but if they do that, then they're not able to see or spend time with patients who actually need more of their time. And so the idea is how do you load balance and move that stuff online, particularly when patients want it. And so if we gave patients a pure choice. Um, you can imagine for routine issues, um, they don't have to take off time from work, deal with parking, you know, schedule ahead of time. If they're able to just do things online, a lot of patients really prefer that, just like they do in every other aspect of their life. You know, making travel arrangements, you know, they don't have to go to the travel agency anymore. Banking, entertainment, commerce. Um, many people have made this this choice in so many parts of their life. Why are we not giving them that choice in healthcare? Oftentimes it's a variety of, do we have access? Do we have people? Do we have supply? And two, is it gonna get paid for? Um, you know, who's gonna pay for it? How will that work? And we've seen, again, via COVID, that it's certainly viable and reasonable to do. Um, helps a lot of people, makes people take care of things more quickly. And if we can get paid for, the demand is gonna be there. I agree, and I, I like how you summarize that. I, I do think a lot of the behavior is driven by the provider themselves. Um, I, I think overwhelmingly, my experience has been, and I did a did a ton of telemedicine and virtual medicine during the pandemic, like every other practicing physician in America. But, um, and the feedback was overwhelmingly positive from patients of all ages, all walks of life. And so, I, I do think the I do think providers have a lot of influence that way. And I, I think that the amount of telemedicine we did during the pandemic allowed us to have enough body of work that we could prove to patients, look, I don't have to touch you every time you have a problem. I don't have to listen to you every time you have a problem with my stethoscope. I like mm-hmm. to joke that the stethoscope is a really cool prop. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter, and I, th- I think you'll agree as an internist that I, I think well over 85% of the decisions I make every day clinically are based on things I hear not things I feel, yeah. not things I listen to. And so telemedicine is an obvious uh, mechanism to make that happen. Um, yeah. who, who was it, Tim? Yeah, I'm trying to think if it was Hippocrates or Gaylor. So just said, you know, if you want to know what's wrong with the patient, just listen to them. Yeah, um, yeah. They'll, they'll tell you, you know, what's, what's going on. You don't which need is a, fancy tools. Which um, is a, which is know, a whole other. to let them talk. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which is a whole other podcast discussion on provider behavior, but we'll save that for another time, right? Um, you know, one one thing I one thing I do hear from patients a lot is, um, and my my spouse actually is one of them. They want that traditional experience, and I I do think, um, you know, the responsibility is on the providers to prove to patients that you know this is a really safe way to take take care of you, especially for the three R's as you described. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about what we're doing uh, with captive health and key care. Um, and you talked earlier about integration. Um, 
And I think part of the experience for patients is they want to do a visit with a provider. Uh, they want to be connected to the rest of their health care. They, I think, do appreciate the benefits of a comprehensive electronic health record. Um, in our case, utilizing the EPIC system, which uh, is utilized or touches about 70% of the American population, I believe, something like that, at last check. Um, and it's one of the reasons we're so excited at Captive Health to work with Key Care with the team you've built there because the entire system is embedded within that, that electronic health record. And I think that one of the obvious benefits to me, um, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of good telemedicine and virtual care providers throughout the country. Um, but I will tell you as a practicing physician, and I've had patients use those services over the last several years extensively, I've never seen a note. I've never been contacted. There's no documentation in my health record. So um, they may be getting great care from the provider at Virtual Care ABC, but I'm not seeing it. It's certainly not integrated in their current care model. So I, I think that's a really important uh, aspect of what we're talking about. Can you just maybe build on that a little bit about the importance of that and the, the value add back to the patient and the provider? Yeah. So as stated, yeah, key care, you know, has uh, works with the medical groups that work on our instance of EPIC. So you know, EPIC is our electronic health record as well. And for a lot of health systems, you know, in the U.S., that is their health record. And um, a lot of people know it is my chart. That's how they access their schedule and their labs and their messages with their doctors. And so um, when a um, someone sees a, a key care physician, they can do it um, by going to their regular doctor's my chart and and just having access with click of a button to get to see one of our um, providers and we're available 24 by 7 50 state access um, the idea is that because we are on epic and these health systems are on epic um, a couple of benefits occur number one is that it's a much more seamless experience um, for the patient the the user the consumer because they don't have to create a whole new set of credentials. They don't have to um, re-input their medical history. It's all available. The virtualist you know, from KeyCare who's seen you has access to your data from your other Epic um, doctors and sites. Uh, and that makes things easier, better in a variety of ways. Vice versa, anything they do when they create their note, um, prescribe their meds, everything goes back to the primary care doctor. Um, so as you said, that yeah, you know, that continuity is really important. Second, um, you know, is uh, the the fact that the um, having the data shared again uh, is a huge quality issue um, that um, ensures that patients uh, are going to get the right level of care. When we make a decision, it really is important to be able to see what other meds you're on, what other history you have, etc. Um, additionally, Epic has a lot of built-in quality. Um, uh, um, um, functionality. Uh, and you know, third is that we can actually staff uh, an interesting variety of different types of virtualists because Epic is such a broad electronic medical record. Um, so if you think about it now as a, as a patient, a consumer, wherever you go, you'll be able to virtually access a doctor who has your information and uh, whatever state you're in, whatever time you do it, um, your own doctor um, is going to be able to access your information um, uh, because in, in, uh, assuming they're on the EPIC system, uh, everything's going to be coordinated. 
I agree, and I'm glad you brought up the word quality. I, I, I like to say a lot that years ago, patients wanted Walmart. Now they want Amazon. And I think sometimes that conjures up images of quick and cheap. Um, and, and these access models certainly increase access and, um, you know, may limit the time it takes to see somebody. But I think, I think patients still want a high-quality product. And I, I think the points you mentioned with the embedded nature of the delivery in the health record, um, I think about it from a provider standpoint. It, it cuts down on duplication. Um, it may cut down on unnecessary prescribing. And uh, certainly there's better continuity for sure. So I think there's a lot of value with that. Um, I, I do think um, one of the things that I hear from patients a lot uh, who've done telemedicine and who have done virtual visits is this idea of the connection with the provider, um, especially if they don't know the provider well, maybe they don't have a long-term relationship and they feel like it's sterile or kind of impractical, whatever. Um, I hear that a lot, but the more patients access virtual care, the more they touch it, the more they do it. I think last year about 40% of people over the age of 18 still utilize virtual care in some way. So I, th- I think we're, we're getting to people, and I think the more people use it and trust it and accept it and understand that this is a safe way to get health care. And that leads me to my next question. Uh, one of the things I think about is can we prove to patients that when they do virtual care, they're getting the same care. They're getting prescriptions when they need them and not when they don't. Um, they're getting uh, care that's based on evidence, those types of things. Can you talk a little bit uh, about how your organization tracks those things or watches those things? Or, and maybe if you would, Lyle, um, how does virtual care do compared to traditional care with some of those common metrics? Yeah, so uh, let me start with um, – talking about key care yeah quality is really important i'm as a physician you know it um it is is one of our hallmarks um so we have sort of a three pillar approach um number one is you know we have a you know criteria for who is on our network so it's not a wide open anyone can just come and practice um like a any health system or group you know we have criteria um that people have to pass to be on our network in terms of their training their skill set their history etc um, second, uh, we um, train and support our providers um, on our system, uh, on virtual care in general, et cetera. And so we provide um, you know, initial training, ongoing training if needed, as well as 24 by 7 support for the, the doctors as well as the patients on any aspect of using the system. And third, we do do um, a variety of um, follow-up reporting, metricing, et cetera. Um, we look at traditional um, quality scores like antibiotic utilization. Um, we certainly evaluate if there's any complaints from any um, uh, uh, patients. Uh, and uh, we also ask the patients for satisfaction scores at the end. So we're looking at all that constantly um, to balance that. Study after study has shown that the typical quality of care around things like antibiotic utilization um, and seven-day follow-up, et cetera, is as good or better doing virtual care as compared to on-site care. Um, and so I feel very good about um, uh, that type of care. And in fact, we build into our system a variety of um, uh, functionality and decision support tools to help, as they say, make it easy to do the right thing, hard to do the wrong thing. So if a doctor's diagnosing sinusitis, we're just gonna show them the meds one would use for sinusitis to make sure 
they would not use something that's not appropriate for sinusitis. Um, they'd have to jump over some hoops uh, if they thought something else was appropriate. So those are the ways that we try to ensure quality, measure quality. And I do know a lot of studies have been done on, on this. I also want to point out two things. A couple of years ago, the National Quality Forum, which is a sort of government-sponsored and nonprofit, evaluated and compared, say, how does telehealth compare in quality to, to um, office-based care? And one of the findings they said was that that's actually not the right question all the time, um, that the real question needs to be, how does the quality compare to what would have happened if virtual care wasn't available, if this telehealth wasn't available? Because a lot of times the idea is not uh, to compare to being in the office, but the fact is a lot of patients would not have gotten care or would have delayed care. The fact is if you have some type of infection um, and you can get a telehealth visit in 15 minutes and it takes a couple days to see your doctor, that infection can rage on and put you in the hospital. Um, and so even though maybe the doctor can't do a swab of some sort, the fact that they can treat and diagnose you days earlier online is a significant quality improvement. The fact that they can look around your apartment or do some other things are, are all other quality indicators. So in some ways, because of quick access, you can make an argument that telehealth for a variety of things is actually better quality than having to wait for an office-based visit. With that said, our doctors also are in the habit of knowing when to triage. So if they're seeing something that simply cannot, should not be done via telehealth, if you cut your hand, if you you know have chest pain, um, or something that is just really significant, they're going to help you, know, you triage to the right place. Should you go to the ER, go to urgent care? Do you just need to be seen within 24 hours? Um, that's part of their job is sometimes they want to diagnose and treat you. Other times they'll triage you to the right place. Um, and that's important. And the final point on this is that we don't give patients credit enough that they themselves actually are pretty good at triaging and understanding the difference between a minor routine issue and something more significant. A couple of years ago, a health system offered um, virtual visits to their patients. These were e-visits. That means email, asynchronous type of visits that they would fill out a form and send it in. They were asked, would you rather um, your doctor, your personal doctor answer you in the next 24 hours or a doctor answer you in the next hour? 95% of them chose, I'll take any doctor in the next hour. Um, and when they asked them, surveyed them, why was that? Um, why were you so willing to, to take any doctor? We thought you loved your doctor. And they said, I love my doctor. It's true. My doctor's the best. Um, but I had an urgent problem. I needed something treated quickly. And that makes sense. But the second thing they said always stuck with me. They said, my doctor's so important, so smart. I don't want to bother him with yeah. this stuff. This was an easy thing. This is a mild thing. I want my doctor, when I'm really sick, I'm only going to see my doctor. But for these mild things, I just know the health system can take care of me. This is easy stuff. I've got a sinus infection, a UTI, a, a mild rash. I don't need my doctor for that. I just need a doctor and I need someone quickly. And I trust that they're all going to be communicating. And so to understand that patients themselves understand the difference between a routine commoditized issue and something where they really want to see their doctor, I think it's something we is a health system as doctors don't always fully um, uh, appreciate and we should give more respect that patients do understand the difference.
I'm I'm just so happy to hear you say that they think we're all smart and cool. It, it's it's <laughs> finally a study that proves they that. Usually I, do. <laughs> no, I, I I agree with that. I I think patients, as a general, do make good decisions, uh, and they they also respect the relationship and and mm-hmm. know when and where and when to ask questions. And that that's a great way to lead to uh, my next question here. Um, we talk a lot about consumerism and patient behavior. And can you talk a little bit, if you were to ask, a, if a patient came up to you tomorrow and said, hey, how do I get the most out of my virtual care visit? Are there little clues or little things patients should think about to maximize the experience and make it more beneficial, useful, and, and cost-effective? Oh, that's a great question. So let's start with a, a video visit, right? You want to make sure you're going to ha- be in an area where you can obviously talk to the, the doctor and and uh, and have good lighting, etc. Um, and certainly be prepared with what your your issues are. Um, if you um, have, you know, uh, if you can, you know, if appropriate, you know, having your temperature um, or any other vital signs, etc. If there's a rash or something that you want to take a picture of ahead of time, you can either send that ahead of time or you know show the the doctor. Um, and um, you know, I think it's simple preparation. Yeah, you know, everything from knowing where you're going to send a pharmacy to being able to tell them if you've, they're always, they're going to ask the same type of questions over and over again, right? When did this start? Is it getting better or worse? Have you taken anything um, that improves it? Um, and are you, you know, are you um, able to do your normal activities? Um, there's some standard questions that they're always going to ask um, that you can certainly be prepared to fill out. Um, in some cases, they'll even ask that as part of the, the intake process. Um, and then just make sure uh, at the end of the visit, that you're very clear on what the next steps are. Whether you know you are you know, need to get pick up a prescription, get something over the counter, um, and if and when to follow up if you're not feeling better. Make sure all your questions are answered. In our case, we always send what's called an after visit summary to uh, remind and summarize to patients. Um, so it's something to make sure you can access as well. Uh, for phone, um, what's really important is if there is anything that might be visual. Um, a red eye, a sore throat, a rash, that you take a picture ahead of time and upload that as part of the process. Similarly, for an e-visit, um, these email type visits, um, you know, they're going to want uh, more details since you're writing everything out and not necessarily talking to someone um, and um, uh, and obviously any pictures as well. That's, that's really good advice. Um, and I want to wrap up here, um, maybe peer in the future a little bit. It's been remarkable to me as somebody who is a uh, proud supporter of virtual care and telemedicine to see what's happened over the last few years. Um, Just, you know, where I work, we've gone from a handful of physicians and a handful of specialties doing virtual care to during, I mean, since the pandemic, I think every specialty in this area practices virtual care in some way or the other. So it's been really cool to watch that happen. And I, I would argue, despite the growth we've seen, I don't think we still understand all of the potential use cases for virtual care mm-hmm. in healthcare across the specialties. And I'd be, as a disruptor and innovator and, and leader in this space, I would love to hear what you see happening next, what, what patients can expect, or even as a provider, uh, what we might see in the next two to five years with virtual care. Yeah, I, I think um, we can look at other industries and start learning. And even within healthcare, if you think about it, think about when you go see your dentist, how much time do you spend with your dentist versus their team, your eye doctor, your dermatologist, your surgeon? 
right? So this concept of team-based care, um, both in and outside of healthcare, has can become more important. And the use of technology for um, analyzing, monitoring, triaging, et cetera, will become more important. So I, I think we'll, you know, one, we'll see a future where you'll probably see the doctor less in the office, um, and but become part of their, you know, under their umbrella, part of their team, that your doctor may tell you, look, you know, Tim, you're doing great. Um, I'm going to assign you to my team. They're going to follow you throughout the year. So instead of coming in twice a year and seeing me, I'm going to only have you see me once a year or even every two years. But my team is going to follow up with you every month. You're going to get an automated message checking in on you. Um, maybe if you have high blood pressure, they're going to ask for your blood pressure. Um, make sure your labs are up to date, uh, et cetera. Um, and as long as you're relatively stable, um, that's all you're going to need for your healthcare. But if you get sick, you're always, if you get really sick, if you have something really complex, you're going to come in and be able to see me. Um, but you're going to start seeing my team on a more consistent basis. So you're actually have more touches with the health system, but it's going to be done on your terms um, at the time that makes sense for you in a more automated fashion. But always have the promise to see me if needed. Second, um, we're going to see, I think, some really interesting niches that can only happen at scale. Um, so, for example, um, you know, we're talking to partnering with companies that do everything from dietitians to lactation consultants, um, you know, to a variety of really specialized niches like irritable bowel syndrome or eating disorders, where they've created these teams that have come together um, to be able to, you know, in uh, to bring together doctors, nurses, coaches, dietitians, etc., um, as a unified team to treat a very specific disorder. Um, most doctors, most health systems don't necessarily have that expertise to treat some of these things, particularly things that are often um, involve um, a combination of you know, diet and lifestyle and mental health versus surgery. Um, and I believe that those will become more readily available because they can be done at scale because any one health system might not be able to, to afford to have a group like that. Um, but at a national level, these groups can form and then be available um, uh, to, to more folks. It can be very niche. It might be, hey, I'm just going to uh, treat high blood pressure in men over the age of 45 who are also redheads. Like That's a type of niche that we might have. And it's, you're going to get this ultra-personalized care for certain things um, that are or are, are more special, but you'll also get this broad tech-enabled team-based care um, to just monitor you on a long-term basis, which is much more convenient for patients um, and cheaper overall, um, while also sharing the promise again that your doctor now, because he's using the team, will actually have more time when you're truly sick. That's the, the future I'd love to see. And I think it starts to solve both the access issues and, and shortage issues we have, um, where I'd suggest we don't have a shortage of doctors as much as we have a shortage of using them efficiently. So I think if we do this right, we win on all angles. We have um, doctors who are more available in the office when you need them, healthcare that is more convenient and available online when you need it, um, lowering the cost and improving the health of everybody. That's that's outstanding. I'm excited for that. And I, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about all the people that touch my patients besides myself. And most of the interactions with the system are not with providers. Uh, that's an excellent point. I'm excited to see that happen. And I, I agree with you. I think it will 
Uh, it is the next evolution of what we're talking about. And uh, everyone should be very excited about that. Dr. Berkowitz, has been awesome talking with you. Um, I look forward to talking to you more. And, and perhaps a year from now, as things evolve and grow, we can get together again and talk about the success of our program. With yeah, that, I, I love, I think there'll be some great anecdotes and great and, and some great data um, and a better understanding of how we're really able to help yeah, the, the um, consumers, employers, employees, you know, really better manage their care on a, on a consistent basis and in a way that, you know, it's what you always want, faster, better, cheaper than what the, the standard is. So uh, I'd love to do that. That'd be great. Dr. Berkowitz, thank you very much for being with us. Be well. Be well.